when we think that we've been born in other realms as other kinds of living beings in the past, it really makes us appreciate our precious human life as well as helps us to develop compassion for other beings. So just even thinking of the beings who are born as animals right now and the way their minds are so obscured and how they suffer unnecessarily from not understanding even the simplest things about their experience. If you take an animal to the vet, it doesn't know that the vet is going to help it feel better. It is terrified of harm instead. And animals are often so exploited by human beings or killed by humans or by other animals. And so these animals are just walking around or flying or swimming around all day looking for food, trying to be happy completely without any sense of understanding more than trying to stay alive and reproduce. And so when we think of being human beings with our human intelligence, our possibility to learn and to consciously cultivate qualities that we admire, to consciously investigate the nature of reality, then we see how amazingly fortunate we are. But our life is also extremely brief and goes by very quickly. So it's important to really make good use of it and not be distracted. Because once we reach the end of our lives, there's no choice but to go into the next life. There's no opportunity to rewind and do things differently. So that's why setting our priorities is so important. And making the priority our spiritual path, trying to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. about the Buddha's life because it all started with the Buddha at least in this world system the Dharma of course uh, has insisted beginning beginninglessly 
and there have been countless Buddhas in the past, but Shakyamuni Buddha is um, the Buddha of our particular world age. And it's said that at some time in the past, I don't know how long ago, the Buddhas had a discussion about who was going to appear in the degenerate time when human beings' lifespan was only a hundred. And as the story goes, uh, you know, when they asked for volunteers, for Buddhas to teach those degenerate beings, uh, the Buddhas kind of did what we do when we're asked to volunteer for, for an unpleasant thing. <laughs> you know, looked around, scratched their head, pretended they didn't hear, essentially. And then one Buddha, uh, you know, kind of said, I'll do it. And so that all the other Buddhas were like, shocked, boy, you know, you're brave. You're going to go help, help them, those dimwits. <laughs> said, yep, I'm committed. And, uh, and so that's how Shakyamuni came to be the wheel-turning Buddha of our particular age. So, in the Mahayana tradition, they say Shakyamuni Buddha was uh, enlightened long, long time ago and appeared as a human being on our planet, born as a prince and going through all these different things, uh, just as a way that is uh, an example to show us the uh, Pali tradition considers uh, that, uh, that the Buddha got enlightened in the very life, you know, born as, uh, you know, Gautama Buddha. Born as, Go- as Gautama, I should say, or Siddhartha Gautama. And, uh, you know, went from the path of preparation up to the path of no more learning all in one lifetime. It doesn't really matter whether we believe that the Buddha was, you know, an ordinary being on the path of preparation or whether he was already a Buddha. I think the example of his life in in either case um, is very potent and something that that can really speak to our heart and uh, get us to think. So there's many ways to tell the Buddha's life, and there's, of course, many details. And um, But I'll just tell a few of the things that I remember and that have really spoken the loudest to me. So the Buddha was born um, as a prince, and the suit, they had a soothsayer come, uh, when Queen Maya was pregnant and the sooth well, maybe it was after he was born I can't remember anybody remember but some soothsayer at one point said I think it was after he was born what said that he will become either a great uh, world leader or a great religious leader so his father um, they were just the kingdoms in, in uh, 
or tribal areas in India at that time were beginning to have a more republican kind of um, government, but his father was some kind of king or ruler over that, that area nonetheless. And so when his father heard this, you know, um, if you bring it up to, to modern times, uh, if your parents heard that you would either become a very, uh, you know, famous political leader or business leader, or you'd become a religious leader, what would your parents want for you? I want you to be a religious leader. I want you to be a business leader, right? You know, better for the family, more worldly acceptable, everything like that. So, you know, Siddhartha's father was no different. And, you know, as, and so was quite um, shaken by that idea that his son might become a big religious leader. Because he wasn't thinking of becoming the pastor of a big mega church. You know, he, in those times, religious leaders, there were all sorts of wandering mendicants all around India. And they just lived off of alms and they, they were very poor and they, you know, had matted hair and, and all sorts of things. And so uh, King Sudana didn't want to think of his son, you know, looking like some dirty old hippie. <laughs> you know, or worse, some some bum, basically. You know, even though it was, uh, you know, they were some people regarded them as uh, spiritual people, which they regarded themselves as the all these groups of wanderers. So the his, the you know, Starthus father did everything he could to protect his son from seeing what life was like, because. Uh, you know, he wanted his son, like most of our parents, to have everything he didn't have, to be everything he wasn't, and so on. And the Buddha's mother uh, died seven days after he was born, so he was brought up by his mother's sister, um, uh, Gotami, or uh, Mahaprajapati. Or they usually called her Mahaprajapati Gotami. Okay, so um, he was brought up in this extremely sheltered environment and given everything, the finest of everything, the best education. You know, if Harvard had existed at that time, he would have, you know, gone to Harvard. Um, so the best of everything. And the child was, you know, actually quite attentive, quite brilliant. Um, and as we read about the Buddha in his youth, he was one of these people who was good at everything. Okay, so not only, you know, very brilliant in his studies, but an extraordinary athlete and got along well with other people and very handsome and so all the things that um, bode well for worldly success that other people admire and respect, uh, the Buddha had. And then, uh, and he wasn't allowed to go out of the palace. So if we think our parents were overprotected, overprotective, 
we aren't alone. The Buddha's uh, parents were also quite overprotective. Um, but like us, he snuck out of the house. <laughs> okay, he was curious. He wanted to see what lay behind the palace walls. So he, he asked his uh, charioteer to take him out. Actually, by, by this time, I should say he had, he had gotten married also, you know, because he was one of these people that, you know, everybody wanted their daughters to marry him because he had everything going for him. So he got married to a woman named Yasodhara, who was also uh, extremely beautiful. They don't say anything else about her qualities because all a woman had to do is be beautiful, and that was sufficient. Sometimes I don't think values have changed very much when I see <laughs> advertising nowadays. Um, but anyway, uh, he, so he had everything and, and uh, you know, looking towards a bright future and stuck out of the palace with his charioteer. And the first time he snuck out, he saw somebody who was ill. You know, maybe somebody who had a stomach ache, who was vomiting, who was, you know, in, injured and ill. And he didn't know what that was. He had never seen that before. Okay, so really, really sheltered. Never seen anybody who's sick before. And he asked his charioteer what that was and his charioteer explained it was a sick person and he didn't understand what that was and charioteer had to explain you know that and and Siddhartha said well is is there any chance that I could get sick like that and the charioteer explained well yes it happens to everybody so he was a thoughtful young man, and he returned to the palace really thinking about that. Oh, you know, I, I have this beautiful vision of, of life, but there's sickness, and I could become sick, and other people are sick. The second time he snuck out of the house, he saw an old person, somebody bent over, you know, walking with canes, uh, no teeth, wrinkled skin, thin, scrawny, you know, miserable. And he didn't know who, what that was. And again, the charioteer had to explain, oh, that's an old person. Well, what's an old person, you know? And will that happen to me? And again, you know, the charioteer explained, well, yes, aging is happening to all of us. There's no way to avoid it. And so, again, Siddhartha returning to the palace, thinking, oh, I'm going to become like that. And other people are like that. Then the third time he snuck out of the palace, then he saw a dead person. And in India these days, although maybe not so much these days as when I first went to India, you saw dead people in public places quite often. It wasn't infrequent. 
So he saw a dead corpse. And again, what in the world is that? And the charioteer had to explain. You know, it's a dead person. What's death? Do you remember when you asked your parents what death was? I remember my my parents got quite uneasy. They couldn't explain to me. It, It was one of these things of, well, they go to sleep for a long time, but don't ask any more questions. But his charioteer kind of explained, as, you know, as much as people could explain about death. And that was a real shocker to find out that he too would, bought, would die and that other beings were dying all the time. So again, returned to the palace, very thoughtful. And then the fourth time he went out, he saw one of the wandering mendicants. They didn't have pastors at megachurches. They didn't have monks and nuns, you know, wearing identifiable robes. They had these wandering mendicants who wore rags, who some of them went around naked, some of them wore the rags and had matted hair, you know, all different kinds of groups uh, of wandering mendicants. So he saw one person like that and again asked well, what, who is that and the charioteer explained well that's somebody who's trying to find the way out of the cycle of birth and death because in ancient India already they had the worldview of rebirth and liberation you know finding the way out of the cycle of birth and death finding some kind of liberation or moksha And the different groups, you know, all had their idea of what liberation was. But people, you know, they were were the ones looking for it. So at that time, after he went back to the palace, you know, seeing sickness, aging, death, and then seeing somebody who's looking for an alternative, somebody who's looking for a way out of that mess. Then that night, at another one of their big parties, like how we used to get together with our friends and, you know, drink and drug and have all sorts of entertainment, so they had another palace party. Of course, you know, it was all for for Siddhartha's pleasure. And um, at the end of the party, you know, everybody was just falling asleep on the floor, so here were all of his, these beautiful dancing girls uh, who were all asleep on the floor with spit coming out of their mouth. So the beautiful dancing girls not looking so beautiful. Um, and his wife had just had a son a few days before. So that was the epitome, you know. Uh, But he said, I can't continue to live in this kind of situation because if I'm going to get old and sick and die and just be reborn again in this, you know, what's what's the use? What's the sense? There is none. And so 
he left the palace once more. Again, sneaking out, he went and kissed his wife and child goodbye. They were asleep. And he left the palace, had his charioteer take him out. And when he had gotten a certain distance away where he felt that his father couldn't send the troops after him, okay, then he took off of his, all of his royal finery and uh, put on some rags. And then, then he cut his hair with his sword. Yeah. They often, in many temples, they have the sequence of the 12 deeds of the Buddha. And this is one of them. And it's, it's a picture I often stand and look at a long, long time, you know, when he's there with the charioteer and all of his royal clothes. He's taking them off and putting on these rags and this holding his hair, because the men had really long hair then, holding his hair up, cutting it with the sword, you know, the sign of renunciation, and then taking off his earrings. That's why the Buddha has such long ears, because the, the you know, ornaments were so heavy, they stretched out his earlobes, but he took all of them off. So, you know, his Rolex, his <laughs> everything, went by the wayside his Calvin Klein jeans his you know all the designer clothes and this and that okay just got left by the wayside and he went off saying I have to find meaning and purpose in my life and I want to be liberated So you can only imagine the turmoil at the palace when they found out that he had left, you know, and everybody freaking out, and his parents going, what are the neighbors going to (laughs) say, you know, and his wife saying he's a deadbeat dad, and... You know, I mean, complete loss of reputation and people saying he flipped out. You know, he must have been, you know, taken too much grass, too much acid, or, you know. So, so people just kind of shocked. In the meantime, you know, he just went on his way and he knew he needed a teacher. Yeah, he knew that he couldn't figure the way out of cyclic existence on his own, that he needed a teacher. So he went and walked around, and um, he, he met one teacher called, called Alara Kalama. And actually, before I get into that story, I'll, I'll read some of the things from, from the Pali Sutras that maybe tell a little bit about the Buddhist way of thinking as he's going out, making this big step of renunciation, going out and looking for a teacher and why he uh, left. Okay, So there's one sutra in the Pali Canon in the... Um, Majjhima the Middle Discourses, it's number 26. It's called the, the Noble Search. And so here the Buddha, 
here the Buddha is talking a little bit about his his experience when he left and what is going on. And so he said, uh, monastics, there are these two kinds of search, the noble search and the ignoble search. And what is the ignoble search? Here, someone being himself subject to birth seeks what is also subject to birth. Being himself subject to aging, he seeks what is also subject to aging. Being himself subject to sickness, he seeks what is also subject to sickness. Being himself subject to death, he seeks what is also subject to death. Being himself subject to sorrow, he seeks what is also subject to sorrow. Being himself subject to defilement, he seeks what is also subject to defilement. So this kind of describes worldly life. Okay? He goes on to talk a little bit more, um, more about what this means. Okay. And what may be said to be subject to birth? Okay. Spouse and children are subject to birth. Men and women slaves. They had slavery at that time. Goats and sheep, fowl and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses and mares. Okay. So, so beings that ways to earn your livelihood, you know, cattle and so forth were a way to earn your livelihood. If we update it to modern times, you know, your store, your factory, your job, um, your modes of transportation, your car, okay, um, gold and silver, so money. So basically everything, it's different objects, but basically it corresponds to our life. And all the, the things that people consider um, as success in this life. Money, possessions, car, yeah, family, business, trophies, all these, all these things. Yeah. Okay, these objects of attachment are subject to birth. And one who is tied to these things infatuated with them and utterly committed to them being himself subject to birth seeks what is also subject to birth so he goes through the same thing the same kind of list talking about what is subject to aging what is subject to sickness what is subject to death or disintegration so again, all these things, you know, your spouse, your family, your friends, your social circle, your job, your worldly achievements, your popularity, your image, your reputation, all these things, no matter how much we have, they arise due to causes and conditions. They degenerate due to causes and conditions. If they're living beings, they also get sick in the middle. 
And then finally, they die or are completely disintegrated. So, all the things that a worldly person takes refuge in are things that are transitory by nature, that arise, get old, pass away. Okay? And not only are the things an ordinary person takes refuge in, in the sense of what do we look to that's going to bring us happiness in life. That's what I mean by taking refuge. What will bring us happiness? Not only do we, as ordinary people, take refuge in all these things that are unstable and subject to aging and death, But we ourselves are subject to birth, sickness, aging, and death. Okay? So we ourselves who are aging are taking refuge in other people who are aging, thinking that they're going to bring us lasting happiness when we ourselves are in the process of aging going towards death. And other people who are going to die... All the people we love, all the people we care about, they're all going to die. Okay, All of those people who are going to die, we take refuge in them thinking that they will bring us lasting happiness and that our relationships with them are so important, so precious, so meaningful, so profound. And yet, they're subject to death. And so are we. It's not like, we're permanent, we're going to last forever, and that the things we take refuge in are arising and passing away. But we, too, are in the same predicament. So when you think about it, that's kind of the epitome of foolishness, isn't it? You know, ourselves being subject to aging, sickness, and death, which already, if we just look at our own situation, I mean, that's a horrible situation to be in no lasting security and being subject to aging sickness and death ourselves and yet what do we do in, uh, to look for happiness to look for satisfaction and fulfillment we turn to other things that are also subject to aging sickness and death yeah, it's really foolish isn't it yeah. how can we expect other worldly people who have no idea of the path to bring us lasting fulfillment and satisfaction. How, you know, how in our complete foolishness are we expecting that from other people? And yet, this is the basis of our attachment to other people, isn't it? That somehow these relationships... You know, are going to be the ones that, that somehow fulfill us forever and ever. Or how are we going to think that a job you know, is really going to fulfill us and make us feel successful when that job is just something that exists due to causes and conditions and... You know, as we all know recently, jobs come and jobs go. An economy goes up, an economy goes down. And there's never any financial security, and there's never any social security. Yeah, you could be upper class one minute, 
The market changes, you lose your fortune, you lose your status. Yeah, you're a CEO one day and you're standing in the unemployment line the next day. Yeah, so yet why do we take refuge in these things thinking that they're going to be the epitome of happiness and security and fulfillment and satisfaction for us? When these things from their side have absolutely no capability to bring us that happiness. They can't even prevent themselves from going out of existence. Yeah. The people we love can't prevent themselves from dying. How are they going to prevent us from dying? How are they going to prevent us from separating from them? You know, that doesn't lie in any of our power because the very nature of things is that they're, they're transient. Okay? So here he's describing, you know, the ignoble search is when we're really relying on all these external things and people and reputation and image and popularity and family and lovers and all this to make us happy when none of these things possess that ability at all. And to boot, we ourselves are subject to deterioration and death. So that's the ignoble search. And those, so the Buddha said that about things that are birth, aging, sickness, death, things subject to sorrow. Yeah. So there's always sorrow when we're involved in those things because there's always separation. Isn't there? Yeah. We have so many loved ones. Can we prevent separating from them? Is it possible? Do you know any people who have always been together with no separation? It doesn't matter how much we love somebody, how much we care about somebody, we're going to separate from them. And that's just a natural way of being. That's just the basic nature of things. Because things that are produced under causes and conditions are not stable. The causal energy is changing all the time, so the resultant energy is changing all this time. So holding on to these things, grasping on to these things, is useless. Because there's nothing to hold on to when something is changing moment by moment. Eventually headed for complete destruction. True or not true? True, isn't it? Yeah? So it doesn't matter how much we care. It doesn't matter how much we hold on. This is simply the reality of the situation. Yeah? So the more we can release the attachment, the more we're going to be in tune with just the plain old reality of, you know, what's possible. And actually, the more we're in tune with the reality of a situation, the better we'll be able to deal with it. When our mind is constantly rejecting the reality, constantly thinking, oh, but, you know, they're young. Okay, separation will happen, but not for another 60 years. You have guarantee? Yeah? 
We have guarantee that they're not going to die and we're not going to die for 60 years. Okay? So, you know, the more we, we hold on to this false view, thinking things are permanent, thinking that they can bring us happiness, thinking they're never going to disappear, the more our mind is, is rejecting reality and the more suffering we'll experience when the reality of the situation is there. Okay? The more we accept the reality of something, the more even our mind can be. Yeah. The more we will appreciate people right now without holding on to them for the future, without expecting things of them from the future from them in the future. And the more even will be when that time of separation comes. Because for sure it, it will. There's no way to avoid it. And then he continues. And what is the noble search? Here someone being himself subject to birth having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeks the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Okay. Being himself subject to aging, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging. When he's saying the danger in what is subject to aging, he means the danger when we're when we get attached to those things okay the cup is not dangerous when I'm attached to the cup that's dangerous okay so even though when he's saying attached what is subject to aging or whatever he's not talking about the, the object so much as the mind that is attached to that thing okay being himself subject to aging, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging, he seeks the unaging supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Being himself subject to sickness, having understood the danger in what is subject to sickness, he seeks the unailing supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Being himself subject to death, having understood the danger in what is subject to death. He seeks the deathless supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Being himself subject to sorrow, having understood the danger in what is subject to sorrow, he seeks the sorrowless supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Being himself subject to defilement, Having understood the danger in what is subject to defilement, he seeks the undefiled supreme security from bondage, nirvana. This is the noble search. Okay? Talking about defilement and seeking the undefiled, okay? When you think about it, how we take refuge, we are defiled beings, aren't we? We have afflictions. We get resentful and greedy and belligerent and the, the whole nine lines, nine yards. So ourselves being subject to having a mind that is out of control 
or put it this way, having a mind that is in the control of afflictions, then we take refuge in other people whose minds are also controlled by afflictions, thinking that those people will bring us lasting happiness. Do they have any ability to do that? Do they have any ability to lead us out of our predicament? No, they're right smack in the middle of the same predicament we are. Okay. So taking refuge in transient things that are subject to ignorance, anger, attachment, and other defilements, taking refuge in those things is the wrong refuge because those things don't have the ability to lead us out of suffering to lead us out of cyclic existence, to lead us to nirvana. Okay. So nirvana is often called the deathless or the unconditioned because it's not something that's going to change due to causes and conditions. It's not something that's subject to disintegration. So he continues and he says, Monastics, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I too, being myself subject to birth, sought what was also subject to birth, being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. I sought what was also subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. Then I considered thus, Why, being myself subject to birth, do I seek what is also subject to birth? Why, being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek what is also subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement? Suppose that being myself subject to birth, having understood the danger of what is subject to birth, I seek the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Suppose that being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, I seek the unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, and undefiled supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Yeah, that thought came in his head. Yeah, I've been doing it all in a useless way until now. What would happen if I tried doing it a different way? So this is a crucial moment where the Buddha is, you know, where Siddhartha is seeing, you know, I'm in this rut completely under the control of my afflictions. My pattern behavior, my habitual behavior that I do again and again and again and again. And what would happen if I tried to do things differently? What would happen if I set my priorities differently? What would happen if I sought spiritual direction, you know, and a spiritual goal? 
but was actually possible instead of seeking worldly direction. Okay? So that's the moment where he's deciding to not always believe what he thinks and to not always keep doing everything he's done before simply because it's predictable and secure. So that's a big turning point. And that turning point is scary, you know, because we can see that breaking old habits is scary. Even when an old habit makes us miserable, there's a certain security in it because we've done it so much. Trying to do things in a different way to change those old habits, it makes our ego squirm because it's new territory. Who am I going to be if I don't keep doing the same stupid things and that make me miserable that are so comfortable because then I feel comfort in my misery because it's so familiar? What would happen if I really tried to discover what life was about? What would happen if I decided to leave behind this self-image that is completely trapping me even though it's so miserable what would happen if I tried to leave that behind and tried a new way to be in this world what would happen and so that moment of like I'm an experiment you know what I've been doing until right now safe, secure and guaranteed misery yeah. What would happen if I tried something different? Could it really be any worse than doing the same stupid things I've been doing up until now? Well, our ego says, yes, it could be horrible. You know, then you'll really fail. Then you'll really fall on your face. Then people will really criticize you. Stay in your, your very well-known dysfunctionality. Yeah. You have your image in your family. Your family knows what to expect from you, what does not to expect from you. Don't rock the boat. Yeah. Don't try and be something other than you are. You're a miserable, deficient, sentient being. Just be a miserable, deficient, sentient being and be satisfied with it. You know? Why are you wanting to change things? It's too scary. Just stay put. Develop satisfaction. That's what, what ego mind is saying. The ignorant ego mind is saying. You know? So this turning point where he's saying, what happened? What would happen if I just tried to do things different? If when my buttons got pushed, I didn't respond in the same old way. When I see an attractive object, what would happen if I didn't grab onto it immediately? If somebody criticized me, what would happen if I didn't get defensive? How am I not going to get defensive when I'm criticized? No. I deserve to get defensive. They're wrong. They're attacking me. 
You know, you see what ignorant mind does. It makes a whole court case about how our stupidagio ways of being are actually the only alternative we have to how to act. Yeah. So we paint ourselves into a corner. Yeah. Like when you're painting the deck, <laughs> stay in everything except you guys were smart. You left your way yourself a way out. Yeah. But we often paint ourselves into a corner and then sit there and say, this is miserable, but, well, I'm in a corner. What to do? Yeah. Be content with my corner. Yeah. Because it's too scary. And what would people say if I tiptoed across the freshly painted area? To go somewhere else. What would other people think of me? They would be upset. They would be angry. I can't make anybody upset and angry. I would feel so guilty. I better just stay in my corner and not rock the boat. Okay. So this is is a moment of, you know, a very significant moment. And then he says, later, while still young, a black-haired young man endowed with the blessing of youth in the prime of life. Okay, so somebody who has everything before them. Not gray hair, wrinkles, bags, aches, pains. Strong. Okay, in the prime of my life, though my mother and father wished otherwise and wept with tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and went forth from the home life into homeless life. Okay, so here's the scene at home. My mother and father wished otherwise. They had a whole career planned for him. What he's going to be. Yeah, how famous he's going to be. The big ruler he's going to be. How many wonderful children he's going to have. How rich he's going to be. Yeah. So though my mother and father wished otherwise and wept with tearful faces. So mom and dad didn't just go, Oh, honey, you want to go do that? Fine. Go wander, you know, get it out of your bloodstream, then come back and we'll get you a good job. (laughs) You know, his parents didn't say, oh, we really understand your spiritual yearning, your spiritual longing. We really understand that. We completely support you in what you're doing. We think it's marvelous that you're going to live in a way that follows your heart. No, Siddhartha's parents didn't say that. They cried and they shrieked. How could you do this to me? What did I do wrong? I did everything for you. I gave you the best possible life you could possibly have. I sacrificed everything for my children. And now, what are you doing to me? You are tearing my heart out. 
You're the one I love the most in this whole world. And you are leaving. And going to do what? Take off your royal clothes. Shave your beautiful head. Shave your beard. Oy vey! <laughs> you know? What are the neighbors going to think? This is horrible. I've given my whole life for you. And what, what are you doing to me? What are you doing to this family? Don't you have any loyalty to this family? Don't you have any care and affection for your parents? You know, you're leaving your whole kingdom and all the people who are depending on you. You know, who do you think you are? Yeah, is this the script? Yeah, this is it, isn't it? You know, you might have subtle varieties according to the culture, but that's the, that's the basic script. Yeah. So it wasn't just, oh, here, I'm going to pack your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, go off and find the truth. You know, it was like, you know, for his parents, the world is caving in. You know, they feel like total failures. Okay. But the Buddha did it. Having gone forth, monastics, in search of what is wholesome, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I went to Alara Kamala and said to him, Friend Kalama, I want to lead the holy life in this dharma and discipline. Alara Kalama replied, The Venerable One may stay here. So Alara Kamala was was one of the many, many spiritual teachers at that time. So he said, The Venerable One may stay here. This dharma is such that a wise man can soon enter upon and abide in it, realizing for himself through direct knowledge his own teacher's doctrine. Okay? So, teacher said, you're not going to have a problem. Come and practice. And Siddhartha continued, I soon learned, I, I soon quickly learned that dharma. As far as mere lip reciting and rehearsal of the teaching went, I could speak with knowledge and assurance. And I claimed, I know and see, when there were others who did likewise. So he learned all the words, got all the knowledge, all the book knowledge. He had the whole thing. Yeah. And many people did that. Then he said, I considered, it is not through mere faith alone that Alara Kamala declares, by realizing for myself with direct knowledge, I enter upon and abide in this dharma. Certainly, Alara Kamala abides knowing and seeing this dharma. So he's thinking, it's not just about the intellectual knowledge. It's not just about the conceptual knowledge. You know, here my teacher has experience of it. Certainly, Alara Kamala abides knowing and seeing this dharma. Then I went to Alara Kamala and asked him, Friend, Kamala, In what way do you declare that by realizing for yourself with direct knowledge you enter and abide upon, um, enter upon and abide in this dharma? In reply, he declared the base of nothingness. Okay, so the base of nothingness 
is a level of samadhi. Yeah. When we talk about the three realms, there's the desire realm, the formless realms, and the form realm. Okay. The desire realm are beings who live with a lot of desire, like us. Okay. So the desire realm includes hell beings, hungry doves, animals, human beings, demigods, and desire realm gods. So the gods, the devas, who have sense, pleasure, deluxe. Those are the desire realm. When you develop deep states of concentration, the first levels that your mind rises to are called the four jhanas. And so the four jhanas are not only levels of meditation or levels of concentration, but they are also realms of existence where somebody can be reborn after passing away from a human existence. So that's the realm where Brahma lives and many of the Hindu gods. Okay. Then above those, there's four form realms, form, four form realms. Then above the four form realms are the four formless realms. In the form realms, they, they have bodies. They, their bodies don't get, um, aren't painful like ours, and they're much more subtle, but they still have bodies. That's why it's called the form realm. In the formless realm, the beings don't have any kind of gross body whatsoever. Okay, and they have really, really deep states of meditation that they never come out of. Once, you know, they go into that meditation at the moment they're born, they stay that way for eons. And then when that karma is exhausted at the moment of death, they leave that, that concentration. And since the karma is gone for, for that level of blissful samadhi, then they fall down to some other lower realm. Okay, some, probably somewhere in the desire realm, someplace or another. So the base of nothingness in the four formless realms, the first one is um, infinite, infinite space, infinite, I know these, infinite face, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and then neither perception nor non-perception. Okay, so the base of nothingness is the third one. So very kind of blissful samadhi, or actually, uh, they say uh, equanimity is is in the mind. So it's not any kind of excitement from, uh, you know, any kind of happiness as we know it. Okay, Uh, so that's what Alara Kamala had attained. And that's on the basis that he said to Siddhartha, you too can attain this. Okay, so now Siddhartha is speaking. I consider not only Alara Kamala has faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. I too have faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Wisdom. Suppose I endeavor to realize the Dharma that Alara Kamala declares he enters upon and abides in by realizing for himself with direct knowledge. So he's saying, maybe I too should try and practice what I've learned. Put it into practice. Seeing if I can, let's see if I can actually do this. Okay. So he went through the stage of learning. Then he went to practice. 
I soon quickly entered upon and abided in that dharma by realizing for myself with direct knowledge. Then I went to Alara Kamala and asked him, Friend Kamala, is it in this way that you declare you have entered upon, that you enter upon and abide in this dharma by realizing for yourself with direct knowledge? So he described his experience to his teacher and the teacher said that is the way, friend. And he said, it is in this way. So he, he, gained, he, uh, he validated his experience with his teacher. And then his teacher said, it is a gain for us, friend. It is a great gain for us that we have such a venerable one for our companion in the holy life. So the dharma that I declare and enter upon and abide in by realization for myself with direct knowledge is the dharma that you enter upon and abide in by realizing for yourself with direct knowledge. And so, confirming that. And so then going on to say, so you know the dharma that I know, and I know the dharma that you know. So, this teacher is saying you have the same realization as I have. As I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. Come, friend, let us now lead this community together. So his teacher, much to his own teacher's credit, was not jealous of a disciple who gained the same realization of him as he did. Some teachers could be very jealous of a disciple who, who actually you know, gained the same realization and would try to ostracize that person or poo-poo them or something like that. But Alara Kamala instead said, you've realized what I have, come and lead the community together. Okay, so he's offering him equal status in the community as a leader of the community, you know, and acknowledging his attainments. Okay, thus Alara Kamala, my teacher, placed me, his pupil, on an equal footing with himself and awarded me the highest honor. But it occurred to me, this dharma does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana, but only to reappearance in the base of nothingness. So, you know, all this blissful samadhi is indeed wonderful, but it's not nirvana. Okay, it's only going to lead me to the base of nothingness, and like everything else, that too will end, and I'll be right back where I started from. So he thought... Not being satisfied with that dharma, I left it and went away. Okay? So let's stop here for right now. Do you have any questions or comments? Yeah. Neither perception nor non-perception. Um, sometimes it's also called the peak of samsara. Yeah? When um, Buddha decided to manifest and regenerate as a Buddha, mm-hmm. was, were they already Buddhas or Bodhisattvas? You s- what do you mean? Um, you said the, when you very first started the teaching that um, like Buddha... They, they have to like you know choose 
who were going to come to this. Oh, yes. Were they actually already Buddhas at that point? Oh, okay. So when I told the story in the beginning about all the Buddhas trying to get out of manifesting in our age, um, I you see, you're asking if there are already Buddhas or Bodhisattvas. The story goes that they're really that they were Buddhas, but I'm sure that this story is not to be taken literally, okay? Because clearly, anybody who ha- who is a Buddha is willing to go to the hell realm for the, you know, for the benefit of one sentient being. But I think the story is told to really emphasize to us the kindness of Shakyamuni Buddha. You know, and and how kind he is to appear in our world where there is so much degeneration. Hmm? Yeah. How did he know that he hadn't reached the highest level? Okay. So in, in this story, how did he know? Like he gained that that level of the concentration of the base of nothingness. Well, he was in you know, his samadhi. And when he came out, he realized that what he had learned intellectually beforehand, his experience matched what he had learned. And then he also went to his teacher and told his teacher what he has experienced. And the teacher confirmed that, yes, he had actualized that. He had reached that level. But how did he know that there was a point beyond that? Oh, how did he know that there was a point beyond that? Because he could tell from his own experience that the the afflictions had merely been suppressed you know that they weren't completely vanquished that with a change of circumstances you know ignorance anger detachment conceit jealousy could rise again in his mind he could, he could see in his own mind that those things hadn't been eradicated now some people get to get to those stages of samadhi and they don't realize that the afflictions still abide in them and instead they think they've attained liberation. Okay. And so what happens to them is then at the moment they die everything falls apart because you know all the afflictions come up again and they realize they're going to take rebirth. Yeah, they realized that the state that they had attained was, was transient and wasn't the final nirvana. So that's like a real kind of horrible situation for them at the time they die. But how do you don't fall in that trap? How don't you fall in that trap? <laughs> this is why I think most of our teachers really emphasize to us to get a very, very good grounding you know, you get a good grounding in the teachings and to set very strong aspirations for full enlightenment, okay, so that we're not going to be seduced by the good feeling that comes in these stages of concentration. And that's also why they want us to get a very good understanding of emptiness. You know, even if we have just an intellectual understanding of emptiness, then if we gain some kind of meditation experience like that, some meditation experience of concentration, we'll be able to check, have I realized emptiness with this? 
and say, oh, no, I learned that, but that's not what I'm realizing, you know. And, and so to be able to tell, oh, no, I haven't finished the path yet. Yeah. So I think that's why they really want us to get a good foundation, not only conceptually, but to really set very strong aspirations so that we're not seduced by the pleasure of concentration and to have some understanding of emptiness so we can check in our mind if we've understood it or not. Because if we haven't understood it, we're not liberated. Yeah? His Holiness tells the story of somebody coming to him. It might have been a Westerner. And saying, Oh, Your Holiness, I had a dream and I was with a thousand Buddhas. I think I've attained the first Bhumi, the first ground Bodhisattva. Because one of the qualities of a first ground Bodhisattva is that they see a, a thousand Buddhas. Okay? So somebody had a dream of being with a thousand Buddhas. He said, oh, I must have attained that first ground bodhisattva. And so because he had just read, you know, that one quality. So this person didn't know all the other things that a first ground bodhisattva had realized, like realized emptiness directly <laughs> and full renunciation and bodhicitta. And so this person had, you know, totally misunderstood what their experience was yeah so I think that's why you know yesterday um, you know we were talking about different stages on the path and so on and some people think that that topic of the paths and grounds is very boring you know what you attain at what stage and everything but I actually find it quite useful because I figure you know at some point when I'm actually able to generate some of those things then I'll be able to assess where I am and if I'm actually making progress on the path as it's described or if I'm off in la la land somewhere you know so you always check with your teacher but sometimes you know you can't see your teacher immediately so you have to be able to also check your own experiences against the descriptions in the scriptures that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's experience matches in every single detail what's written in the scriptures. It's not like that. There is some variety, you know, in things. But just, you know, to, to be able to know that we're in the ballpark somewhere. Yeah? How come when, um, like, you get to the highest level of suicide, that one, or when you're, say, like, you look like in the blissful realm or whatever, how come they can't continue to meditate and move up? Mm, okay, so once they get into those very blissful samadhis, they can continue to meditate and deepen their samadhi, but then they get to this, the last stage that is called the peak of samsara. But they don't, they haven't realized the emptiness of inherent existence. They have very, very deep concentration powers, but they don't have the wisdom that's necessary to cut the root of the afflictions. So they may stay in that blissful samadhi, but they're not liberated. And as long as we're not liberated, you know, when that karma ends to be in that rebirth, then the afflictions, the seeds of the afflictions that have been dormant all that time, now they start manifesting into manifest afflictions. 
and then, you know, kerplunk into a lower realm. And then we can attain that in the human body? Um, attain what? Those yeah, lo- the realization of emptiness. Of emptiness? Um, no, I think... It's a good question. I forget. I should know this. <laughs> no, there, no, I think there... Um, hmm... I mean, if, if I'm sure in Amitabha is pure land, you can realize emptiness. So that's not a human rebirth. So you must be able to realize emptiness there. Whether any of these gods can realize emptiness, if they haven't previously realized it, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I have to check that one. But they say that some, you know, that sometimes the gods are like so lost in their concentration, or so lost in their sense pleasure deluxe, that it's hard for them to practice the dharma. Yeah. Have to check. <laughs> 